the University of California Riverside presents Blue, Gold, and Black, the podcast that's dedicated to amplifying Black voices at UCR. I'm Dominique Bill from UCR's Community Engagement and Outreach Unit. In each episode, we'll be talking to UCR students, campus leaders, and community partners to explore the intersection of being Black and being a Highlander at UCR. And I can't wait for you to meet today's guest. Let's get started. Welcome back, everybody, to the Blue, Gold, and Black podcast. I am your host, Dominique Bill, and I'm super excited to have a special guest on with us today. Um, we have Miss Shante Thomas with us, who is our Associate Dean of Students and oversees the Ethnic and Gender Resource Center, Costo Hall at UCR. Uh, she just recently joined the UCR family in recent months, so we're super happy to have her on, super happy to amplify her voice and give her a big shout out. Uh, Ms. Thomas, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Happy Tuesday. <laughs> yes, super happy Tuesday. Thank you. Thank you um, for joining us. We're super happy to have you. So if you could just, you know, really briefly so we can kind of firmly plant you here at UCR, just really quickly tell us um, what it, exactly your position entails. Sure, definitely. Well, thanks so much for this opportunity to share space with you and whomever is listening. Hi, Highlanders and, and beyond. Yes, yes. Um, today actually makes two months. <laughs> so I've been Beautiful. two months in. Thanks for that anniversary nice. opportunity. <laughs> um, <laughs> so essentially, I am here to support, um, uplift, boost, uh, shape, sponsor, uh, all, all things ethnic and gender center relative. So there are nine departments under my immediate purview. And, you know, the goal is to really, again, make sure that, you know, the work that they've done in a tremendous fashion is, is again, kind of elevated to the level that we are, you know, really starting to firmly kind of plant and concretize the work that we're doing within the institution. And then all the other Dana student stuff. So, you know, conduct is definitely still under my purview. Um, I work directly with Dr. Christine Mata um, to, again, continue to support the entire student body and not necessarily those that are specifically um, constituents of the ethnic and gender centers. Nice. Thank you. That's really, really great explanation of your position. And you came from one of our sister campuses, did you not? I did. I did. So I, I, I journeyed down, way down uh, Southern <laughs> California from University of California, Santa Cruz. So I worked at UCSC for seven years as a director for the African-American Research and Cultural Center. Wow. Um, and I'm also an alumna of UCSC. So I've spent, you know, 11 years of my life as a as a slug. <laughs> OK, OK, cool. All right. Well, let's add a little bit more context into what seems to have been your work, you know, definitely for the last 10 to 15 years. Um, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and some of the childhood experiences that you had that were kind of instrumental in who you are today. Sure. So I, I am California born and bred. Nice. Um, so born in Northern California, specifically San Jose, California, for mm -hmm. those that don't know, which most people know San Jose now, mm -hmm. it's about 45 minutes south of um, San Francisco. Um, uh, lived there until I was eight or so. And then my mother and I came back home to Southern California. And then I spent, you know, most of my formative years in Carson, California, which is near like Long Beach and Torrance in the South mm -hmm. Bay part of um, L.A. County. Okay, nice. And so talk to us a little bit about those formative years back in Carson. Um, what were some of the things that you experienced and what was kind of the attitude around education in your family, even at that young age? Yeah, definitely. Um, 
So my, so I'm, I'm an only child. Um, as I said, my mother and I traveled to Southern California, and then unfortunately, she became very ill and passed away. Mm. Um, and then my grandmother said, "I mean, you're you're here. I love you. You know, you've been a central part of my life. You're just gonna stay." And I said, "Okay, sure." Mm. Um, Dad kind of gave the thumbs up. He was living in New York, and you know, so from the point I was nine or so until eighteen, you know, I was mm. with I was with Granny. And education has always been a central focus, you know, of of our family's interests, mm-hmm. um, but not just in the formal sense. Like going to college, clearly, I'm a big proponent of it. I think it's sure. important, but it's not the only way, you know, that mm-hmm. that one can find themselves to be quote unquote educated. Um, but I would say, you know, in thinking about my grandmother's upbringing, you know, she was the youngest of thirteen kids, and I think of those thirteen um, children, I would say probably ten or eleven went to university in some context, wow. you know, some folks had advanced degrees. So it definitely, again, was was a central kind of understanding and framing of the way that um, my my um, my matrilineal, you know, lineage has, mm. has come through. Yeah. Um, I don't know as much about like my father's um, history and, mm-hmm. and family, but, you know, he was always supportive, you know, yeah. of, of the education that I received. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, as being part of Generation X, it was, um, and we, me and my friends kind of joke about it, but it wasn't the expectation of if we're going to college, it's which college are you going to? Mm-hmm. So not only coming from a college going environment at home, you know, th- that was part of my peer group. That was just part of, you know, our, our expectation is that we definitely were going to um, venture towards some form, you know, of higher education. Um, and then I can get into a little bit more, but like an advanced degree, that's a whole other conversation. But there definitely was, you know, an expectation within my immediate circle, my immediate familial structure to to at the very least procure an undergrad degree. Wow, that's really amazing to also kind of be able to tap in, you know, to that history um, a little bit, because it's not something that a lot of people, especially black people, kind of have the opportunity to do um, to kind of put into context there where they are in their family and where their family is, you know, in the broader sense. So that's really dope. So with education kind of being a huge focus, you know, from your grandmother and, you know, her extended family, her siblings and things like that. Um, Talk to me a little bit about elementary school and also talk to kind of start tying in, I guess, your setting in terms of like how you started identifying with your blackness as well. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I don't know at what point I started identifying with my blackness. It was just a central part of who I was, Mm -hmm. you know, as a being, Um, you know, I in, in San Jose and the time that I spent there, um, there weren't a lot of black folks, but I was so rooted in my ethnicity, in my kind of racialized identity. There mm-hmm. was never really too much of a question about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we shifted to Southern California, the area in which I grew up was very black. <laughs> right. You know, so Carson, for folks that are familiar with it, it, you know, it's middle, upper class um, but there's a large black population mm-hmm. in that area, you know, and then with Compton near you again, a lot of black folks at the time. Now, the demographics have shifted um, over the last 20 years or so. But at mm-hmm. the time, you know, it, there were a lot of black folks um, that lived in the area. And, you know, most of the people that I went to elementary school with, middle school with, they were primarily black. Mm-hmm. It was it was rare um, in, in a classroom setting prior to getting to high school that I would find myself um, as, as one of the few folks. Mm-hmm. Then bring up to speed, <clears throat> come up to speed and thinking about. Uh, the latter part of junior high, and I would say for most of my tenth grade year, mm-hmm. um, being in high, being in uh, magnet classes and higher education, uh, thinking word class and things of that sort, there definitely was a shift, and I could see, you know, that 
you know, for a lot of my black friends and peers, we were no longer in classes, you know, because mm. we were in some of these, I don't know why I can't think of the word, it will come to me in a second. But you know, being part of kind of advanced placement classes, mm-hmm. that's, that's the word. <laughs> um, you know, I, I started to kind of things. see the shift yeah. um, as far as the, the folks that I grew up with in my neighborhood and the people that were in the actual classes mm-hmm. with me. Um, but generally speaking, I, I grew up in an environment that was relatively black, but diverse in the same way. Yeah. Because again, while I was in an area that was highly populated with black folk um, in Carson, there were definitely other segments of Carson that maybe weren't as, I guess, black centric. Mm-hmm. And we would all, you know, kind of mesh together and really get along, which was ideal. Yeah. So tie that in now, because that's great context, right? Um, because I think, you know, this the whole saying, you know, black folks aren't a monolith, right? We don't all necessarily get to um, for one reason or another, grow up in an environment where maybe things are very Afrocentric or black centric just by, you know, sheer proximity to other black folks. And you kind of experienced that, right? Because at home, you know, growing up in Carson, that's what you're around. That's what you're exposed to elementary school, middle school. And then we get to this sector in high school that kind of changes. So can you kind of explain maybe what type of culture shock that was for you and how you kind of navigated high school during that time period? Yeah, I don't even know if it was so much a culture shock. Mm. It was, for me, I saw it as an opportunity to just learn more Mm. about different folks and different people. So in Carson, you know, we have a high population, again, of black students. We have a high population of um, uh, Pacific Islanders. So Mm -hmm. a lot of Samoan students were Mm -hmm. there, a Mm -hmm. lot of Filipino students, you know, and not as many white students, but, you know, there was a a spackling. (laughs) And, you know, just to be able to be a part of, you know, these rich and beautiful cultures is just something that I really appreciated and I really thought was the norm Mm. until you start talking to other folks and then you realize the the um the homogenous ways and folks you know the way people kind of come into their being and i'm thinking Mm -hmm. like wait you've never had x you've never experienced this so it was it was interesting to talk to other people that didn't have my experience to Mm -hmm. know that it's generally been you know kind of one or the other either they've been the very you know few black people in the area and they Mm -hmm. grew up around a lot of white folk or they grew up around a lot of other latinx folks Mm -hmm. um, or they just grew up in an area where it was a a little bit mixed and i think that that was my experience again Mm -hmm. while Definitely kind of central focus is just blackness. And I will make an interesting distinction. So black centricity and then Afrocentricity definitely was a huge divide. Mm. You know, I think about my family, um, you know, my most of my family, not all, but most of them would probably not say that it was an Afrocentric um, gotcha. <laughs> environment. So, you know, when I think about like consciousness and I think about the way that I came into my understanding yes. of my ancestry and of the ways in which, you know, I identify, mm-hmm. that happened later. You know, but again, there was never a question about my black identity. And I know we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. But Mm -hmm. I I, when you said that, I was like, "Mm, if I talk to three or four people like my elders and my family, they would think, yeah, nah. Mm. (laughs) Interesting. So that that was interesting, too, to be in an environment that was so rich, full of culture. But then there there were still pieces, you know, Mm. of 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 the way in which we came into the Americas as black people. It wasn't really something that was a central focus of the conversations within like my family. That was more of a. That was more of an academic leaning, if I can be perfectly honest, and then mm-hmm. me wanting to dig a little bit more and kind of understand, um, you know, where where we come from and how we came to be. Currently. No, no, I, I think I'm glad that you made the distinction because it is a unique distinction when we in the way that we frame it and I guess the way that we approach it um, is important. So thank you for making that. So talk to us now, like your journey to higher education, right? So you've already mentioned at the top of the show um, that you went to uh, UC Santa Cruz. And so 
talk to us, like, what was the decision that ultimately led you um, to UC Santa Cruz? Was it your first choice or was it your last choice? <laughs> you know, talk to us a little bit about that journey. <laughs> and no shade to anyone watching it that doesn't understand the context of UC Santa Cruz. I'm with it. wasn't my first choice. Um, so so the first choice, again, going back to consciousness and, and right. black identity, yes. um, my first choice was to go to HBCU, mm. and I I knew I was either going to Clark Atlanta or I was going to Spelman. That's that's um, what it was. They're 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 both in Atlanta, mm. um, and I thought, why not? Like this is amazing. Again, mm-hmm. California born and bred. Right. You know, my my understanding and um, kind of reckoning, so to speak, of HBCUs was through media. So a different world was really popular. Mm. Um, you know, this doesn't crack sometimes, but I might be a lot older than what I look. Um, but that that's how, you know, I, I was able to learn that that was a possibility. Right. You know, again, diversity is beautiful. And I love, you know, growing up with different folks from a different area. But but to be able to to tap into other black folks, your point, we are not a monolith by any stretch of the imagination. And I saw that, you know, growing up in high school. But to be able to to learn and engage and, and move to another state was also very exciting. Mm. And then my dreams were crushed. No. <laughs> And um, my 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 grandmother was not in approval. She did not wow. did not think that that would be a viable option for me. Um, Interesting. You know, and her 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 thinking, and, and when I talked to some of my other peers and good friends, and you know, some of their family members thought the same. Is that that's just not that's not reality? You know, you're not going to grow up in you know this <clears throat> this little incubator where it's just all black folk. Mm. And, you know, my pushback at the time was, well, then let me have my fantasy world. <laughs> then let me live in this reality, you know, for, for the four years or however long that I'm there. Um, and no, that was just, that was not an option. And, and again, and I, I, I've, I've changed as far as like my voice and where I see myself and advocating for myself. And at the time, you know, when I think back, I just didn't do a good job of really like selling it. I was just like, huh. I was like, okay, well, right. I'm going to go as far away as I can because <laughs> I because I knew enough about me to know that I had lived a relatively sheltered life. Okay, um, I was a little self aware, gotcha. <laughs> and I wanted that opportunity to really be independent. You know, mm. not wild out, but just do things on my own and mm-hmm. really continue to kind of come into my own being. And again, being from I don't I don't claim for I don't claim Northern California, but being raised for the first eight years of my life and then mm-hmm. still having family there, I felt like I had a connection to okay. NorCal, and I thought, you know what? Santa Cruz it is. Like, it's cute. They have a beach. They have a pier. Sure. Um, it's cute. <laughs> it's cute, you know, from the pictures yes. and the little bit of time I'd spent there. Yeah. But I never formally visited the campus. So gotcha. if anyone's listening and you're thinking about going to university, go to the campus. Talk to people. Make good decisions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I applied to multiple multiple UCs, all of which... Um, I was like, yeah, they're still too close. Like UCLA, too close. Mm -hmm. I was like, San Diego, too close. Santa Cruz, okay. You know, because again, I also bought into the hierarchy that we put in our UC and Cal State. That's a whole other conversation. I think prestige is great. I also think it's very subjective. We can talk about that later. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So again, I was like, okay, we'll we'll go to Santa Cruz. You know, again, if I need to be home, I can be on a flight within an hour. Again, kind of speaking to the privilege, Mm. um, you know, it it would be no big deal if if I were to go to this university. And, you know, it was a a struggle for the four years that I served um, Mm. at UC Santa Cruz. You know, when I think about culture shock, the culture shock wasn't as deep rooted for me as it was for some of my other friends. But I think the, the difference for me and I say this time and time again, is that when I entered um, Santa Cruz, I entered as a young as a young lady, as a young girl. Mm. And I left as a black woman mm. um, because of the, the different ways in which 
life <laughs> came at me um, at UCSC. I was a politics major, um, education minor. Most of my politics classes were were you know very very white, very um, male identified. You know, uh, white male centric was really the focus. You know, mm-hmm. of, of a large amount of the classes and the the targeted audience. You know, most of my professors were older white men. Mm-hmm. Most of the people in the classes were younger white men, mm-hmm. and I felt more times than not to just not even be visible, which is ironic. You know, my my weight is fluctuated, but I've never been a thin person. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm like, I know you see me. Like, it's so interesting how I'm invisible, but I I take up space literally. um, And and at the time, probably not so much figuratively. I do that now. No Mm. ifs, ands, or buts. So it was just an interesting time to to kind of go through, you know, the, the development of becoming, you know, of becoming who you are. I think a lot of people say that college really shaped who they are. And I, I would say undoubtedly, it made a huge impact in, mm. in me as an individual and someone that really not only valued education, but someone that saw themselves as an opportunity to maybe even be a conduit to other folks. And I know mm. we're going to get a little bit into that, but it, 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 it shaped me in so many ways. So while I kind of roll my eyes about Santa Cruz, I don't know if I would be who I am now, not mm. going through that experience. Yeah. And so you know, I, I know you're intentional with your words. So when you say that, you know, you served <laughs> four years at Santa Cruz, let's unpack that because I really like the way you framed your experience as I entered as a young lady, right? But specifically, you exited as a black woman. So talk to us about that concept of serving your time and the transformation that took place and the things that you were involved in that facilitated that transformation um, from you being a young lady to a black woman. Right. So folks that know um, things about Santa Cruz is that it's, it's a highly active campus as far as like the organizing and the activism that comes from there. Now, I at the time, I would never identify as an activist. But I was definitely involved in mm. some organizing. You know, I was involved in um, when Prop 209, I think maybe my first or second year, Prop 209 was big. And and we, you know, shut the campus down many, many times. I wasn't the central organizer, but I was definitely a part of that. Yeah. And even having those conversations with my grandmother, she's like, what are you doing? Like, wow. You're there to get an education. Why? Why? Why are you involved in these different? And I'm like, A, why not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and B, it's like this, this is it's one kind of what you do, but also this is another way for me to learn. Like, I'm someone who definitely is a big benefit beneficiary of tactile, you know, kinesthetic learning. And I need to actually do things in in order to really understand not only my positioning in it, but to have a better sense of the context and kind of how we're moving through different things. So I thought, what what greater way to really understand, you know, what we are experiencing as younger folk, um, but also as minoritized identity. So Mm -hmm. that was part of it. Again, that was something I would have never done had I not have gone to Santa Cruz. Um, I think, again, being able to, to utilize my voice um, I, I won't, I won't ever really identify as a shy person, but I definitely can be really reserved. Um, okay. I, I didn't go into UC Santa Cruz with a lot of confidence. Um, and I think I was not physically, but I, I was beat down in mm. the classes, you know, not really, not really being given the opportunity to speak. And mm. then when I did speak, folks would make a lot of assumptions about what would come out of my mouth. And mm. I felt that, and I heard that. Um, so it was, it was interesting to kind of be, again, you know, most of us that go to, you know, these these universities, we're at the top of our class in high school. And now you're surrounded by all of these other, quote unquote, smart folks. Again, we can unpack what smartness and intelligence is. But mm-hmm. you're, you're in these classrooms where, you know, these folks are coming with these really broad, comprehensive, you know, uh, academic vernacular. And you're thinking like, 
who are you? Like, aren't you 19? Right. Like the rest of us, yeah. how, how and why? So mm-hmm. you, you start to see the disparities, you know, again, I was very comfortable in you know, my world in Carson. And then you come and you're like, oh, private school, right. Oh, you, you went to school in Laguna Niguel. I had never mm-hmm. been in Laguna Niguel. I mean, things like that. So you start to really see the ways in which many of us, you know, think that we have an advanced level of education or different things that we're doing. And you start to see that those those disparities are so key. So, again, mm. me recognizing and understanding that and, you know, kind of seeing it happen um, in the classrooms with my professors, you know, with the TAs, mm. it, it, it shaped me to want to want to help and really create a better sense of um, equity. And so guess, like at the end of the day. Yeah. And so on that point, just really quickly before we kind of finish your transformation, right, like that whole imposter syndrome uh, you know, that black students far too often experience, right? And despite despite the amount that they've already had to excel just to get there, you know, to university or whatever that that goal was, mm-hmm. just to get there and still for some reason feel like, well, maybe, maybe it was a fluke. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Maybe I'm not worthy. And like, Looking back on how you were kind of identifying that as you were going through it, but looking back now, like what what can we say to, you know, to our black students that are struggling with that with that chip on their shoulder? Right. Um, Because a lot of times that that imposter feeling prevents them from going out and getting resources. Right. Because they feel Mm -hmm. like I should be able to do this by myself. Uh, I should be smart enough to. But, you know, it doesn't mean that they're lacking in capability. Um, it's just that whole psychology behind it. How how can we combat that for our black students or how, get them to combat that? <laughs> End racism. You're right. <laughs> um, <laughs> end it right now. Right. Um, you know, I think I think reminding folks, you know, and I think the conversations I've had with not only my black students, because, again, that was my charge for seven years, just that you're you're, you're not here by accident. Mm you 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 are value the the university needs you like they need your voice they need you to show up in your full authentic self um and they need you to be open to whatever that experience is you know and again that's not i'm not saying that to negate folks but i think for me i'll use my i statement for me i wasn't Mm -hmm. open to it because i kind of thought i knew all the things Mm -hmm. um and i think there was a little bit of resistance for me again we oddly lacking confidence but also being like like, no, I can do all of this and not yeah. really being open to the resources that are there. I think, exactly. again, some of that is that pride. So it's mm-hmm. weird. You have pride, but you also lack some confidence. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes there's that struggle. And those are two kind of oppositional forces that mm-hmm. sometimes get in your own way. So I would say find your people, find your pod, um, look into the resources because you deserve them like every single other person. And I think more times than not, particularly folks that come from affluent backgrounds or people that come from um, white cultures uh they they know this they recognize this you know they tap into all the resources day one and i I would say i I think it's their right it's Mm -hmm. their right to do that it's their right to maximize every single experience and i think you know what i've seen time and time again is sometimes we don't do that because again pride there's Mm -hmm. other things i'm sure that are at play i know there's other things but i Mm -hmm. think because we're like specifically when i look at like my lower ses babies my lower socioeconomic status um folks that come from maybe impoverished backgrounds i think again they're you know the the hood is behind them they're like you made it you did it and it's like yes i did and i still need help how do i ask for that help because now that i'm in the university setting people have already you know think that I've, i've explored i've kind of gone to this holy grail which some elements, yes. And I think, again, that pressure 
you know, mm-hmm. where you feel like you're in a pressure cooker and you can't really relieve it. So you release uh, uh, words. You can't mm-hmm. really relieve that pressure so mm-hmm. that you can then make yourself vulnerable to ask for the help. You know, mm-hmm. asking for help does not mean that you that it's not you don't have a deficiency. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you're less than anyone else. It just means right. that, hey, this is a new world. This is a new environment. And I think, again, adapting to your new normal mm-hmm. is something that we don't we don't share up front. You know, we don't really talk about like hidden curriculum. Mm-hmm. So in the work that I've done, I really try to put that at the forefront, you know, of how we're moving to say that everyone's new at the university, but some folks do have a, a step up. You know, mm-hmm. some people have taken some, you know, formal um, courses through through different avenues and different venues. You know, mm-hmm. some folks have a legacy of people going to the university. Yeah. So they really understand that that's really the only way that you move. That's the only way you kind of build your capital is by mm-hmm. tapping into other folks. You know, I try to, again, also demystify what a professor is, you know, what mm-hmm. that means to have a conversation with people that are in positions of power. So exactly. really just trying to get folks to understand that you you you're, you're supposed to be here mm-hmm. again, the UC highly critical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and regardless of the UC, I want to do. I want to dispel that too. I don't think you know people like. Oh, you only went to Santa Cruz. It's an it's an amazing ed- education if you want it to be. Yeah, <laughs> you absolutely. know, I look at all universities. Like you can get a top notch education at at most, not all, mm-hmm. but most universities. If you if you want that to be your lot in life, and I think mm-hmm. again that that sometimes put pe- puts people at you know kind of odds. Yeah, no, and the concept of right deserving is really, really important. Um, and I always tell students like, "Yo, you gonna pay for them resources whether <laughs> whether you use them or not." So like, yep. if we want to just make it as simple as possible, like, what? How much does a dollar cost? You know, um, and I yes. really emphasize that to <laughs> students because there's resources to help us unpack all of the the psychology behind why we may not want to pursue those resources. But if you believe in getting your money's worth, like (laughs) at the bottom line, then you make, you, you need to tap in because it's so much value that gets added into the cost of your tuition and fees, which you're going to pay regardless. So Definitely, exactly. you know, you deserve to tap into those resources. I want 100%. students to know that. You know, and yeah. regardless, and you know, and I think there, I think there's a lot of amazing first generation initiatives out there to really mm-hmm. support what we've talked about. Mm-hmm. But we, we look at we look at the research. The research there's still a gap, even if you're second generation. So yeah. again, I, I don't I don't want to I try not to put any particular demographic over another because I'm we, we still see those gaps. We still we still we still see folks struggling yeah. more than what they need to. Like the struggle is real anyway. <laughs> so don't right. put upon more work, more duress, more stress. When, you know, other folks are out here just kind of knowing, knowing just where doing to go it, and they're yeah. getting it. <laughs> and it's, yeah, and it's, and it's, it's about access, right? It's mm-hmm. about access. Um, Cause if you have access to the resources, it doesn't necessarily matter if it's quote unquote your resource or not. You know, somebody that can tap into that resource and, you know, share that knowledge with you and share that wealth. Um, and that's exactly why, you know, I'm so happy to have you here in, in conversation because it's important for students to know, like, who these people are in these positions that have access to the resource, right? It's- and I love that you're doing that because, again, I see all of us um, as possibility models. Yes. You know, sometimes, and they say you can't see it unless you do it. Eh, mm. You can, but it makes it that much more difficult. Right. And it helps to be able to see the the variety and ways in which black folks are impacting um, yeah. not only policy and uh, procedures, but but are literally just there to support folks. And I think, again, yeah. people get caught up with titles. 
I, I'm here to support students. So, yeah. you know, I, when, when I become the vice chancellor of student affairs, because I'm putting it into the universe, um, I'm still going to be that approachable person because it's important, folk, it's important for folks to know that we're, we're here. Not, I'm not here just for my own. And right. <laughs> there's something to be said about, you know, being able to support someone who has some sort of similarity culturally, you know, to what yeah. I've experienced. And if I can, ba- if I can knock down doors, which is what I've done, um, I'll, I'll continue to do that because it's important. Yeah, no, it it's insanely important. And I think it's also critical for, you know, folks in your roles who are trying to move into more senior positions, more executive level positions to stay tapped in because, you know, it, it seems to be a common theme. But, you know, the higher you rise, the farther away, you know, through systems and institutions and hundreds of years of programming, you get pulled away from maybe what your focus was when you first got in. And so, you know, that's why I love being able to, you know, have folks like you on and share these stories because it, it, it's so critical. So I want to, before we get on our 15th tangent, I just kind of want to round out, you know, finalizing, you know, when you get ready to graduate college and you're leaving as a black woman, just kind of paint that final picture for us before we just kind of dive into your, your professional career. Um. So I don't I don't think I noted kind of the, the impetus for me studying politics, but mm-hmm. I it was my as I noted, it was my grandmother and I prior to me going to college. Um, but before my mother passed, there was an assumption that my, my grandmother was going to be in her home by herself. Mm-hmm. Um, not this little feeble woman, but she's like powerful. She's like 84 going on 60 and she's going to outlive all of us, God willing. Right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, she she thought that she would be there by herself. So she tapped into um, the foster care system and mm. really, you know, wanted to become a foster care parent. So when my mother passed away, she was like, Sean, it's still it's still a big house. We still have room. And I said, let's do it. You know, I'm an only child. I'm like, great. I have another sister. Mm. Um, so I, I live for, you know, four years, three to four years, three, four years um, from the latter part of middle school through high school with maybe six to seven different foster girls. And their, their experience shaped me in a variety of ways and just the ways in which like life can really be awful. Mm. Um, again, recognizing how the environment I grew in and seeing, you know, how some of these young ladies have, have, have thrived despite their environment. So going to UCSC politics major, I was going to law school because Mm. I was like, I want to be an attorney for the department of children and family services is ridiculous. I don't understand how this is allowed to happen. Um, You know, I was like, thank goodness we're good people, but some of these social workers and some of these systems just are not set up to really support and benefit, you know, our, our, our babies that are in these systems. So that was really my goal. Um, I took the LSAT, scored relatively well, and I said, you know what? I need time off. I need a break. My brain hurts. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been battling things beyond the academics here at this university. Mm -hmm. I just need time. But I needed a job, so I thought, let's become a substitute teacher. At the time, we could do an emergency credential. I then... um, I, I went through, you know, those steps and those processes, and that's pretty much all she wrote. Mm. Like, I, I've, maybe when I'm 60 and I'm retired, maybe I'll go back to law school. I won't, but it just sounds cute. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I always saw, again, like, I, I noted equity was a big part of kind of what moved me and it continued to push me and want to strive to mm-hmm. get um, – to get better access to to allow folks to really be able to excel in a way that wasn't as difficult as it it, it, it was way difficult than what it needed to be. And I kind of sure. saw that. And, you know, I thought this is this is another way, you know, again, mm-hmm. going back to being a conduit. This is another way that I can support folks. Mm-hmm. Um, so I taught in middle school for four years. I thought, hey, let's let's see what's going on in high school. Mm-hmm. Taught in high school. Um, I didn't teach. I was I managed an after school program in high school. And it, it again, talk about shaping. These experiences are really transformative mm-hmm. when you're able to not only 
use a different lens, but to able to, you know, to be able to really experience what other folks, you know, yeah. are, are walking through, you know, these systems and how they're continuing to support not only themselves, but their families. So mm-hmm. that six or seven or eight years or so, you know, working specifically in the K-12 system was something that was just eye opening. Yeah. And it really allowed me to understand the bottlenecks. Mm-hmm. That exist and mm-hmm. and the ways in which we still don't have this this parity, you know, that yeah. we're looking for to even give people access to get to higher ed. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think it puts in a lot more context into your work in higher ed. Like I'm I'm relatively still new working within higher ed for sure, but education in general. But um, I'm happy that I, I even for a year and a half, two years, I started working at the high school level before I started working at you know, the higher education level trying to Mm -hmm. now serve high school students because it just, it helps you see the full picture a little Mm -hmm. bit more because you see Mm -hmm. the challenges that are faced in high school, which inevitably are going to lead to the challenges those same students will face if they can get into college. And I don't say if because of like a lack of capability, but I say if because even even high school, it can be very difficult to maneuver, mm-hmm. especially when we have to meet these different requirements, right? What is considered in a college preparatory course versus just a regular high school course? And mm-hmm. does a school even have access to those courses? So what are we going to do for, you know, so it's so many different things that you can touch on in in that perspective, that kind of working within K through 12 in any capacity, um, mm-hmm. definitely really puts into perspective like what we're doing here in higher education and how important it is to make sure that, you know, the resources are from our positions are flowing back into those K through 12 environments. So I I do want to talk, you know, a lot about what it meant for you to run, you know, the African Resource Center um, at UCSC, um, because obviously that's going to be insanely critical influence on what you're going to do for us here at UCR as the overseer of all of the gender and ethnic um, resource centers. So Mm -hmm. talk to me about that experience of being, you know, the leader of a UC campus African resource center in all of the wondrous <laughs> stories you have with that. Yeah. Oh, oh all the stories. We, we need a separate podcast just for that. We, we will um, get it done. <laughs> <laughs> it, I mean, it, it meant everything. It meant mm. everything to, to me, you know, it meant everything to staff that I work with and students. Um, and I don't say that to be like, you know, popping my collar, but mm-hmm. you know, folks, folks tell you enough to think like, Oh, I had an impact. Okay. <laughs> let's keep going. Um, yeah. you know, and I, I always want to say, let's make sure we're giving people their flowers while they're here. And yes. my flower bed runneth over, <laughs> mm. particularly when I left, you just, you really start to see like, Oh, okay. Good times. Um, mm. but again, going, going back to the start. So I started at UCSC, uh, in a professional capacity in 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was at the point where I knew that I wanted to get back in, get, get into higher ed, but work at a brick and mortar. I was working for an educational consultant and we would, um, support, I won't get into the nuances of it, but we would support different universities to help them um, launch their e-platform, which is gotcha. I- ironic because that's what we're doing now. Right. Um, <laughs> we're all online. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I, I still had, you know, some, some wounds from, mm. from, from me serving in Santa Cruz. So even when the idea was presented, um, through a friend who knew a friend, it's important to keep your connections. Um, they say, resources, hey, you know, the, 
there and they're all there and they're not just in the uh, kind of transaction away. They are people. Re- people are resources as well, which is yes. why I love that you're doing this because you're showing like these are people that you should talk to and get to know and kind send of understand. Send the email. If yes. you haven't yes. noticed by now, send the email. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Please do. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I, I, I was hesitant. I was like, why would I go mm. back to Santa Cruz? Like mm. that was awful. Hindsight is always twenty twenty. Um, it wasn't awful, but it challenged me and it pushed me in a way that I wasn't ready for. Okay. Um, there were parts of it that were beautiful when I was an undergrad. Um, mm. a lot of that is just the people that I connected with and the, the way that I'm still, you know, really connected mm. with, um, some of these folks who I consider brothers and sisters. Um, but going there, I said, you know what? Buck up Shantae. Like, you can do this. Like you're an adult now. You've experienced yeah. things. <laughs> right. Um, and, and again, I, I knew that it was a risk, but it's a risk that I could afford to take. So okay. I, I then took the interim position as a director. And I would say maybe day two, I thought, this is my job. And I'm going to mm. fight tooth and nail to get the permanent position because I need to be here. I want to be here. And it's important. Mm. Um, and it just it, it was an opportunity for me to to reconnect with Santa Cruz because to be perfectly honest, as an alum, I, just, I didn't engage. My experience sure. wasn't fruitful enough. My experience didn't lend me to be like, let me give dollars and let me go back during the reunion. I, I did none of that. <laughs> I did none of that for the Yo, 14 years that I was away. My university stay calling me asking for donations. I'm like, bruh. Y'all get rid- <laughs> y'all get rid of these loans. I'll send you my loan payments right. for donations. <laughs> right. Um, so it it meant it meant the world to be able to kind of reform and shape mm-hmm. the center. The center at the time had been around for a long time. Um, I'm going to say like twenty twenty four years, mm-hmm. and it you know it didn't it didn't have the punch that I think that it needed, particularly to support black students who, mm. you know, when I was a student there, we made up like 0.2% of the population. Um, when I came back in a professional capacity, we made up maybe 3.5%. So not a huge mm. shift. More, yes. And also the general population increased. So it still didn't feel oh, okay. like we had made the strides. Right. <laughs> um, so to be able to really to tap into kind of the ethos and, and really be able to support, you know, all the folks within um, Pan-African identity was just what was amazing. I, I grew... As a human, um, I continue to push and resist um, the institution because, again, they wanted to institutionalize us more times than not, but not necessarily in a way that was beneficial to the students. So right. to be able to, again, to build the confidence, because, again, the imposter syndrome doesn't stop when you get a degree. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it manifests its way in a lot of different um, mechanisms in your life. So oh. I even had to work through that. You know, am I black enough? To hold this title as a director for the African-American Research and Cultural Center. You know, have I situated myself? Am I poised enough to sit at this table with these, you know, heavy, you know, senior executive leadership to Mm. then continue to fight for what I know the students needed and what they wanted? You know, Mm. so again, these are still questions that that are playing in my head at the time. Um, And, you know, I'll be perfectly honest, like some of those would would pop up over the course of the seven years that I served in that role. Mm -hmm. But they definitely were more so on the beginning end, because, again, you, you you you. You move through a lot of the ways in which you don't think you're capable or, again, deserving, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I had to kind of move through like, no, like you, you, you blackity black <laughs> <laughs> because you have a love for who you are as a black person. Again, yeah. I recognize and again, naming light skin privilege. Yes, that is definitely a thing. I recognize that I benefit from that. So let me try to leverage that. Let me make sure again, if, if because you're whack, and the only reason you're listening to me is because I'm like two shades darker than you, then you about to get all this and you about to, mm. and I'm about to bring, you know, other folks in to make sure we have that opportunity. And I think mm. more times than not going back to your point, as soon as we lose that, the more that we ascend, I want to continue to stay true to who I am to make sure that I know that I, I move with a level of privilege. 
I need to still hold on to that for my students, for Mm. my colleagues, for my staff, because I didn't go into the role just to serve students. That was a large part of my position, um, but also recognizing that representation matters. And if that means that I had to support, you know, some greener professional as they were coming in as a transplant from the Bronx, (laughs) now you're in Santa Cruz, California, in like Mm. a forest with like deer and skunk and I knew I knew they were going to need that support. So I really, you know, made it made it literally my business to be able to support as many folks as possible mm-hmm. um, because that 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 really the community feel was so important, not only again to the students, but all the black folks, you right. know, that were there at the university. But then also moving with that kind of diversity minded, equity minded reality to know that, you know, we're none of us are free until we free. So, yeah. you know, how, how, how do we build that? How do we build that coalition? How do we move in a way that we are really galvanizing um, movement so that we're all supporting and down for us being free? Yeah. Because no, liberation it, is the goal. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I, I, your, your, the end of your point, you know, is kind of the perfect segue into, you know, my next question, because I, now I want to bring the focus over here to UCR and um, your work is going to uh, be the same in the sense of championing, advocating for mm-hmm. students, especially marginalized students. Um, but the scope gets a little bit broader mm-hmm. um, and that kind of ties back in right to that aspect. Like when we ascend to these, you know, different types of positions and our scope broadens, um, how, how are you making sure that um, with broadening your scope in terms of the specific groups of students who you now need to support and nurture and make sure that they're successful, how do we still manage to keep our black students kind of central, just for lack of a better term, but kind of central in the way that we're navigating this space? Because I'm of the belief of, you know, if you're going to ben- if you're going to uh, uh, promote and empower the black students, that's inevitably going to empower all of the students mm-hmm. um, around them. So talk to us a little bit about your approach to that. You know, I would say first and foremost is to tap into the energy that that's that's that, that's there before me. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm not coming into I got all the answers. I have some sure. answers. Mm-hmm. I have some expertise. Mm-hmm. I have some experience. But I also know that this is a different environment. And, you know, mm-hmm. and, and me kind of understanding um, the cultural pieces here at UC Riverside has been really key. You know, I have a whole two months <laughs> to, to have to be better, to, to, to be more mindful and to be yeah. really um, focused on, on learning kind of the mm-hmm. culture here. I wish I could say that it's different, <laughs> but there's a lot of things I'm just like, this looks really familiar. Mm. This, this feels so much like what I just experienced. So Institutions there, have the, have a way of doing that, right? <laughs> Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very. Um, so I, I think for me, a large part of what at least I've done and what I'll continue to do is is work through and with students. Mm. You know, they, they, they need to be the central focus of what we're doing. And I think to your point, as far as like black students, I think, again, we're in a movement. You know, there, there's a window. The window's not huge, but there is a window right now. And we need to make sure that we're walking through it. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the question of then and people say, well, why, why black folks? Why not? You know, exactly. it's usually my answer. You know, mm-hmm. I think, again, the whole concept of like black lives matter. Nobody said only. <laughs> mm-hmm. But Black folks are the one that are literally on the end of, you know, really, really highly, you know, oppressive systems. And, you know, we look at the disproportionate ways in which we're affected, not only in education, mm. you know, again, some folks, this is this is their goal is to get um, a, a degree. 
mm-hmm. from UC Riverside. That is beautiful. But there's so many others that didn't even get here. You know, I think you use the not if you make it. I think that if factor is huge. Like who who are we leaving out? Who's yes. not at the table? Who are we not considering? Yes. Um, and, you know, and I go a step further because, again, intersectionality is a thing. Like yes. I am literally I'm an intersectional being, you know, as a black queer woman. Mm. Um, there, there's just different ways that I'm moving. There's different things, different energy that I'm moving with. So mm. I recognize that, you know, my, my black trans babies are going to get it harder than, you know, some of my black cis babies. That's not to mm-hmm. say that all the resources have to go to black trans folk. And I know that there, there's a different level. There's a different playing field, unfortunately, for people that are hyper minoritized. So yes. just moving with that, that energy. I am not a trans person. I don't understand that experience, you know, personally, but I recognize and I know that it's difficult. You know, I recognize <laughs> right, and know yeah. that the disparities are real. So yeah. I think again, me me moving with a history and an experience and understanding of how um, the, the the diverse ways that we're serving our students um, mm. can't be and won't be enough. Uh, just for me, kind of resting on my my lo- my lo- loyals laurel laurels. laurels. That's, thank you. Laurels. Words are hard sometimes. <laughs> they are. <laughs> you know. So again, so so understanding that and, and talking with students yeah. and and but not talking in the way. And this is something that I've already pushed back on a couple times. Not talking in a way for me to understand what's happening or why it's happening because I know that. Mm-hmm. I, I know the systems of oppression. I know. I know. I get the institution of higher education. Mm-hmm. But to be able to make sure that we're in touch with gotcha. what students need and what they want. I don't ever want to put upon someone and say, I know you said this, but I know you actually need this. Now, there may be a piece of it. You said this. How about, you know, how, mm-hmm. let, tell me more about. I think that's different than me just assuming that I know all the things about, you know, what's happening um, on the front lines because I don't and I won't. I'm mm-hmm. not there. I haven't been there. So I, I do sometimes, you know, have to remind folks, let's just pause. Let's take a step back and let's make sure, you know, let's recalibrate and make sure that this this is going to benefit not only our current students because that's love students but sometimes there is a short-sightedness and that's just me being honest you know sometimes it's like what we need now yes we need that now but let's make sure this is going to benefit folks 5 10 15 years from now just so Mm. we don't have to reinvent this wheel um and come back to where we were you know Mm -hmm. at this point so i think again that's part of that administrative lens is being able to not only reconcile but being able to hold on to what's happening but also making sure that it has an impact and an effect moving down the line. Yeah. Um, and that's something, again, that I, I, I'm i broadening that. You know, I'm having an opportunity to really make sure, again, that we are looking um, beyond the current context. Yeah, no, and I, again, you know, I've appreciated everything that you've shared so far, but I really appreciate you just flat out saying, like, sometimes our approach to these quote-unquote issues can be short-sighted, right? And to me, that means, like, we've identified an issue. We might have even mobilized around that issue, right? We got people excited. We got people moving. We got people talking about it. But there's no organization around that newly formed mobilization and that energy. There's no one there to organize it and shape it to make sure that that mobilization is organized into a full-blown movement. And then that movement becomes institutionalized, right? Implement it into policy, implement it into practices. So even if the energy of the mobilization dies off, we already got it on the books. It's here. It's a new standard. And now we don't ever need to dip below that standard. And I think, I just think that element is so, so, so critical, especially for, you know, people in positions at these universities where, where they are decision makers, or they're at least talking to directly to the decision maker and making sure that they're trying to implement these these mobilizations, these movements into structural change, because without the structural component, 
you know, we're going to put out a bunch of statements and we're going to feel good about ourselves for a few weeks until we're knocking at this door again. And so I really appreciate you for sharing that. And it also kind of just leads me into my last question for our interview building off of that idea of short-sightedness and being able to look beyond that short-sightedness, right? That's what our ancestors were able to do. That's what allows me and you to be having this conversation. So just keeping within the spirit of that, um, what would you say is your most optimistic vision of the future when it comes to our Black scholars, not only here at UCR, but if you want to paint it in a broader sense, please feel free to do so. So many things. Again, we don't have all the time in the world. Um, I, know, I think. I, know. I think. Simply put, I want. I want students to just exist as a student, or black students specifically. I want mm. them to just be a student. I don't want them to feel the need to procure a building or occupy a building. I don't want them to have to, you know, uh, try to figure out how to organize and meet at the bell tower. That's what it's in my background. Again, because yep. I'm two months in. Don't, yes. don't, don't like, don't clown me. I'm still learning. You know, but I, I really want, I want a black student to be able to come in. And again, I've noted before, like maximize their experience, you know, mm. not, not have to then focus on trying to hold on to that student piece, but also now being a key, you know, activist or organizer because they're not getting their fundamental needs, you know? Mm. And I think, again, if we can get to that point, we've arrived in so many ways, but, you know, un- unfortunately more times than not, you know, our black students, because we're talking about black students, feel that that's really their only their only way to kind of move through is to fight and resist and battle um, and, and and kind of lose sight, lose sight of why they're there. You know, that's mm. something I would tell people in Santa Cruz, like, you're not here to surf. You're not here to hang out with the deer. You're here to get an education. And when, mm. when that education is now... The, on the back burner, if that's now supplementary, then we we we've we've lost <laughs> as as the administration, as practitioners, we've mm. lost a lot, you know, because we're we're not holding up our end of the bargain. When you said right. you wanted to come to us, we've now created an environment where you can't solely focus on your education, and that's unfortunate. Mm. And unfortunately, we've been doing that since the beginning. So again, mm-hmm. this is my my little hope <laughs> for the world is that folks can come in and just and just be a student. And mm-hmm. it just and I think more times than not, because again, not all I try to stay mm-hmm. away from absolutism. But I think, you know, most of our students, particularly our black students, like they they do get caught up in that because they feel that's their mm-hmm. only way to move through because we continue to create barriers. Mm-hmm. And I say we I'm part of that. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm part I'm part of that cog, so to speak. Um, but that that's what I would hope and wish, you know, for the future is that a black student can just come into Riverside and, mm. you know, do, 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 do their bit. That's not to say to minimize that. I need, I need everyone to, I need you to go explore once we're out of COVID. Like yeah. I want folks to, you know, go out of the country and get that experience. You know, I mm-hmm. want people to be able to access the different intern and externships that are available to them so that, you know, they're building their capital. So when they leave, they have, they have a network, you know, they yeah. have a, they have resources that they can tap into. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that's kind of my answer. Um, mm-hmm. I want them to just, to just be a student. Yeah, um, absolutely. To just simply be able to exist in, you know, their most happy in their most happy self. I think that's what we're all pushing towards and fighting towards. And so, you know, I, I want to encourage students, um, you know, being honest with them, like we're not at that point. <laughs> you know, we're not at that point, you know, not, you know, in again, not speaking in absolutes, but, you know, Um, We do still have that obligation for future generations. We haven't kind of reached that point where we're absolved of that, you know, that calling or that that need to, you know, resist. Um, But now is more more important than ever to advocate for yourself 
um, at the least, because mm-hmm. um, I think what gets lost is in that self-advocacy, you're advocating for other students, whether you know it or not. Um, mm-hmm. There's always going to be at least one more student who has it just as rough as you or just as right. good as you and still needs more, whatever, however you want to slice it and dice it. And so I want to encourage students to still have like that passion, that attitude to want more for themselves and to want more for their people and right. to just put the final button on it. Tap in, email these folks. It don't matter how many fancy words they, they got in front of their name, right? Associate vice chancellor, associate dean of students, the provost of this, the academic advisor of that. Um, if you take nothing else away from, you know, this this show and, and, and Miss Thomas here is that we have people in these positions that want to be in touch with you, that want mm-hmm. to assist you. Um, and their hands are extended, right? You just have to be willing to reach out sometimes. So, um, And some of us need that. You know, I'll just be perfectly honest. I think, again, and I know we're running short on time, but, you know, the the stark differences I've seen in coming from Santa Cruz Riverside, there's a lot of Black folks mm-hmm. on staff and that are faculty here yeah. compared to Santa Cruz. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I again, just to belabor the point, there's a lot of folks here that really want and need that interaction. You yes. know, again, there's a lot of black folks here, but depending on where they are, you know, again, I don't know, but maybe mm-hmm. there's not a lot of black folks in anthropology. I don't know. I'm still learning, but mm-hmm. you know, they really, they really want that connection, you know, and yes. you know, we're, we're black folks first and foremost. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we love our people and, and we want, we want, and we need that connection. I'm going to connect mm-hmm. with everyone. I'm going to vibe with everyone. Cause that's just, that that's me. That's how mm-hmm. I roll. Um, mm-hmm. But there's also something to be said again, I think, we 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 tend to get nervous you know again yeah. you're you're a doctor so-and-so that's cool i can show you how to become a doctor so-and-so but let's mm-hmm. just sit down and have a conversation for the yeah. end of the day like we we are two humans we are two black folk and and we you know anyone that i've ran into thus far for the first two months they really want to center um needs and the student need the student needs um mm-hmm. so it's i think it, students just need to know like we're here for mm-hmm. them and we want to see them succeed but I will say that doesn't mean that you're going to hear everything that you want to hear. You know, I, I, I move with a level of like, I, I can be mom, I can be auntie, but I'm also going to move with that mama love. I'm not going to appease you and tell you everything. Sometimes you need a little, mm-hmm. a little kick. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I think we need to be, we need to be ready for that because I come with that, that kind of familial, you know, vibe as well. Mm-hmm. So it's just, again, to your point, I love that you're doing this. I've seen a little sneak peek of some of the people you've interviewed and there, there's some fancy titles, but these people are, are, are here to support and continue to uplift, you know, uh, the student, the student need and student interest. So yeah. definitely email us. Yes. Um, I wish they come by our office, but it's COVID time. So when we get I back know. on campus, come to our office. Yes. <laughs> fancy titles, but real people. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Fancy titles, but real people. So that should be your, the sub name. We're going to have to sneak that one in there real quick, <laughs> but, um, we're at the end of our interview. I mean, obviously, we could go on for hours and hours more, which definitely means you're going to have to make another appearance on the show so we can yeah, really start unpacking this whole concept of equity and how we service marginalized students, how we support black students. But Miss um, Thomas, we were super happy to amplify your voice on Blue, Gold and Black. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for the invitation. This was fun. So I look forward to talking with y'all in a Zoom call or an email. But definitely, again, plug in and connect. Tap into your resources. We're here to support y'all. For sure. All right, y'all. We'll catch you guys later.
Thanks, everyone. Thank you for joining us on Blue, Gold, and Black. This program is produced by the Community Engagement and Outreach Unit of Undergraduate Admissions at the University of California, Riverside. Learn more about attending UCR by visiting admissions.ucr.edu. And be sure to check out the description for other useful links and resources. Help support this podcast by liking, subscribing, and sharing. And be sure to check out our podcast videos on YouTube. Catch you guys later. Yeah.